Thank you, Jeff. He was really nice to me. All those times I persecuted him on test, and for him to be that nice shows what a great guy he is. I was asked to kick off the series for ASB, and I'm happy to do that. A lot of times when I interact with you, it's economics class, or when I'm asked to speak in chapel, sometimes it's related to business or personal finance, that sort of a thing. And so it's a privilege for me to be able to just to share with you a little bit out of the Word today in the chapel time and hopefully minister to your spirit from my spirit through the vehicle of God's Word in the time that we have together. Now, this is a big topic. Uh, probably if you looked at the attributes of God, the overarching attribute, that great umbrella attribute, would be His holiness. But one of the things, of course, that means the most to us as believers is the love of God because it's through that love that He reaches out to us and reveals Himself through nature, more specifically through His Son, the Lord Jesus, through the pages of Scripture. And uh, so probably... You know, maybe the second greatest theme in Scripture would be the love of God. And then that love, as as it is brought into our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and flows out as sort of a mirror image of our relationship with God. It's a big topic, and I just get to introduce a little bit of it to you in the few minutes that we're going to spend together. Of course, it is the first component of the fruit of the Spirit, love. And a lot of ink has been spilt on the subject of love, and it's kind of neat that we get to talk about love on Valentine's Day as well. A writer once said, love isn't what makes the world go round, it just makes the ride worthwhile. Tennyson said, it's better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. Or... It's better to have loved a short man than not to have loved at all. Love is blind, but marriage can be a real eye-opener. I've asked a lot of different groups, how do you know when someone loves you? And received a variety of responses. Some of those I've written down, and I have a a long list of responses that run the gamut. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13.13, Now abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I think, of course, about the two loves of my life. The great love of my life I met at the age of 16 and a half, and that's when I met Christ as my personal Savior. And that's when I decided on who would be my master for the rest of my life. And the second love of my life I met when I was 22 years old. And at that time, uh, maybe a little bit unlike you, you're in college right now, but at that time I was working and I was in management for a company back east and and just traveled all over the place. I worked in a six-state region and I kept an apartment in Indianapolis. I grew up in Indiana, but uh, very seldom got to that apartment. I spent most of my time living in motel rooms and uh, eating out in restaurants. It's kind of neat for the first week or two, but after about a year of doing it, the waitress walks up and you say, you order. 
It was just kind of a drag. But I remember talking with my cousin, and I respected and feared my cousin. I respected him uh, because he was just, he's just a terrific Christian guy and still is to this day, and we had real fellowship together. I fear him because, first of all, he's an all-state football player, and secondly, I had just called a girl because he was afraid of girls and asked her out and told her it was him. And then I told him what I'd done, and he was too afraid to call her and tell her he wasn't going to do it, so he had to go out on a date with her. And eventually, through all this sort of thing, he got engaged. And one day I asked him, I said, would you know of a Christian gal that I could uh, just spend some time with? And he said, sure. He said, if I wasn't engaged, I have just, just the, the, the gal I could recommend to you. And I said, well, I, I'd like to meet her. Because I was getting kind of lonely out there on the road and, and uh, just wanted to spend some time with a, a Christian young lady. And he said, I'll tell you what. He said, we'll, we'll go out on a blind date. And my fiance and I will go out with you. And I'd never been on a blind date in my life, but I said, okay, let's do it. I trust you, Mike. And uh, the evening came for the date. It was on a Friday evening. And my cousin called me and I said, and he said, man, I got some terrible news for you. He said, uh, I just found out that, that uh, Sherry's sick and, and we can't go this evening. And so I'd never been on a blind date before, but I pulled up in the driveway and walked up to the door, knocked on the door, and Beth came to the door. And she looked at me and smiled and the Holy Spirit spoke to me. <laughs> and the Spirit said, Hubba Hubba. <laughs> now, love has to be tested. But I can tell you that that was love at first sight. And from the moment I saw her, that very first instant, uh, she's been the only person for me. And uh, I'm a lousy pre-marriage counselor. I get to do it quite a bit over at our church. It always surprises me when, when couples come to us and want to spend time with us over in our living room and talk with us. But I'm not good at it. One of the reasons I'm not good at it is our soon-to-be 20 years of married life uh, have just been so wonderful that I have a hard time discouraging other people from getting married. And I think that if you're going to be a good marriage counselor, you have to kind of try to talk people out of it a little bit. And then if, they're, if it's okay after that, then uh, go ahead and tie the knot or whatever. But... Uh, one of the saddest portions in Scripture, when I think about it in the flesh, is the portion of Scripture that says in heaven there won't be marriage or give, giving in marriage. Because the greatest thing I could think about at this point in time, other than spending eternity with Christ, would be to spend eternity as the husband of my wife. And I just have to trust the Lord that heaven is going to be better than that. And I know that it will be, 
but the God has given me just such a wonderful wife. When I speak at uh, couples retreats, and I just finished up one two weeks ago, and tonight I'm speaking at a sweetheart banquet, I like to talk on the topic of kindness in relationships. And we see that in the book of Hosea, that God's relationship with Israel stands in stark contrast to the relationship that the prophet Hosea had with Gomer. And that God's relationship with Israel is described as one that that has loving kindness. My wife is the kindest person I know. If she wasn't kind, I would know that because I've lived with her day in and day out for almost 20 years and she's a kind person. I'm a little discouraged by that because psychologists tell us that opposites attract. And I hope that I may be half as kind to her as she is to me. As we look at love, I just want to rehearse with you quickly the vocabulary of love. And think a little bit about some of the terms that were used in that day. And I know that for many of you, this will be review. But the first word that comes to mind is the word eros. And eros literally means a physical or a sensual kind of love. It can even be, at times, a romantic kind of love that is sort of wraps around the physical or the sensual relationship that, that can occur between two people. And of course, much of what we see portrayed as love in the day in which we live is eros love. It's the kind of love that comes screaming at you in most of the movies and in most of the television that you, that you watch. It's where the couple become romantically involved and ultimately physically involved. And there's very little said of commitment, nothing said of marriage. Uh, it's just physical culmination, and that's considered to be love. And, of course, that's a deadly trap in the day in which we live because that kind of a relationship, a relationship that revolves just around eros love or a physical relationship, is just a time bomb that's ticking away, isn't it? Because ultimately, if a relationship is based on a physical relationship, then communication is crowded out. Friendship is crowded out. The people spend so much time interested in their physical relationship that they don't have time to talk or communicate or to develop the basis of a lasting relationship. And if they enter into marriage based on that relationship, the marriage doesn't tend to last very long because the physical relationship in and of itself becomes boring after a time because God intended a physical relationship to simply be a culmination of a deeper relationship, a spiritual union, a, a union that is rooted in friendship. And that physical relationship, as it mirrors that deeper relationship, becomes more interesting and more intense as time goes on. But when it's shallow enough just to be a physical relationship, then within six months or a year, you see a divorce many times that occurs if people are married for that reason or they go their separate ways. 
I remember when we first moved to California as uh, we'd been married about four years and I took a job here at the college and uh, we moved into an apartment complex over in Canyon Country and I was kind of naive at that point. I'd been raised in sort of, uh, you know, a, a more conservative environment and we'd lived in western Michigan for a while. And we moved into that apartment complex and and there were lots of couples living together in our building, and I began to, to ask the guys about their wives or ask the gals about their husbands. And one after one, they just told me, uh, well, we're not married. And as it turned out, most of the couples that lived in the apartment uh, that we were in, were just they were living together. And uh, the jury was kind of out at that time on what the results of that uh, relationship would be. But uh, couples have been practicing, practicing that long enough that the, that the results are coming in. And that is that uh, the divorce rate is higher, is as high or higher among couples that cohabitate uh, as it is among those that, that don't. And that abuse is higher among couples that cohabitate, abuse in the couple's relationship. And the reason for that is, is because there's primarily just a physical bonding that occurs and it ultimately is leading to disaster in these relationships. And it grieves my heart to do that. We know that the Bible tells us that the God of this world is Satan. And the God of this world is controlling the messages that, that are coming through. And the message that's coming through is this Eros relationship, and it has set the time bomb in relationships. And we see homes and we see relationships disintegrating because they're founded on something that will not last. It is something that ultimately leads to despair. Well, the second word that's used for love is the word storge, and you don't see that too often. As a matter of fact, the word eros and the word storge never appear in the New Testament. We'll get to a couple that do in a minute. But this is an old Greek word, and it just simply means love within a family. The love that family members share together. It's just kind of a God-given love, isn't it? Uh, Beth and I have four children that range in ages from 15 to 4, and every time that uh, my wife would say to me, you know, we're going to have another uh, child, uh, immediately the love would begin to well up in my heart for this little one. Even though I had never seen him or her, we have two girls and two boys, and it's just that love that God places within a family, and that love uh, remains there even under unusual circumstances. Uh, I've been involved in our church with children that have been taken out of abusive homes. And even being taken out of abusive homes, the young people, these kids will cry for their parents. And you wonder, how on earth could they do that? How could they love someone that, uh, uh, you know, that hurts them so? But yet God has placed that love within our hearts, the love within a family, and it never goes away. I talk with people in our church whose children disappoint them and maybe dramatically disappoint them. And they say, well, that's it. I don't want anything else to do with them. And the next day they're thinking about their kids again. 
and I'll talk with young people that say, you know, my parents have given me such a hard time and they weren't very loving people. But still they think about them. And over time, even begin to once again maybe kind of crawl out of a shell and begin to seek approval again. And that's that love within a family. And it remains strong and lasting. The next word for love we find in the New Testament, and it's the word phileo. Phileo. And some uh, people that you may hear talk on this subject say, well, phileo love is brotherly love, this, the city of Philadelphia. Or phileo love is, uh, is uh, friendship love. A philanthropist is someone that loves his fellow man. And it's just kind of more a casual or a friendship kind of a love. But I don't believe that's true. In John chapter 5 and verse 20, you don't need to turn there right now, but John, uh, John tells us there that the Father loves the Son. And the word phileo is used. And it's a love that occurs between members of the Godhead. And I think phileo love, rather than being just a friendship love or being a brotherly love, that it tells us that it is a responding or a reciprocal kind of a love. Because we know that the various members of the Godhead love each other. And there is equality there in terms of love and relationship. And so the, the response that comes back, that loving response that comes through the initiation of love is phileo love. Now only once in the pages of Scripture is a woman taught to explicitly show love to her husband. And the word that is used there is the word phileo. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, where we have the maturing process in Scripture that's laid out, and I wish I could spend more time talking with you about how to mature, how to grow up. But the way that's laid out is very clear, and that is the way young women mature is by spending time with older women. The way young men mature is by spending time with older men. That's why the church is absolutely indispensable. You can mature to a certain extent here at the Master's College, but to some degree you're in a peer ghetto. You're locked into a group of 18 to 22-year-olds, and you can learn something from people that are two or three years older than you are, but you're rather limited in your ability to mature at that point. You've kind of got a ceiling on that maturity. But the church has no ceiling connected to it because there are people of all ages. And within the church, it says that one of the things that the older women are to teach the younger women is how to love their husbands. And the word phileo is used. An older woman is to teach a younger woman how to respond in a loving way to the initiation of her husband. Now, there are a number of things that that passage, is, that passage just sort of screams at us without us catching it at first blush. And that is that women are responders in that relationship between a man and a woman. And a woman is to learn to respond to the loving leadership of her husband. If that loving leadership isn't present, the responder starts getting worked over, doesn't it? And she has difficulty responding maybe to a man that she doesn't respect. 
a man who may not tell her the truth. She has difficulty responding to a man who puts himself before his family. She may have difficulty responding to a man that's hiding behind a newspaper or who's sitting in front of a television set with his jaw just barely touching his chest as he watches Monday night football. Irma Bombeck says that any man that watches an entire season of football should be considered legally dead. He is a lifeless form. And after a while, when she tries to share with him and talk with him about the things that are on her, on her heart, and he sits there glued to a television set, he's telling her that, you know, that, that whoever it may be, John Madden is more important than her. Last night I had an interesting time with, uh, our third oldest, my 10-year-old daughter, and I hope I don't uh, speak out of turn to share this little experience with you. If she finds out I told her I owe her a buck, anytime I use them when I'm talking, I give them a dollar. But, uh, well, I'm a business teacher, you know. <laughs> now that goes, and it's always open for negotiation. If they think it's worth two, we'll talk, you know, kind of thing. But even as a dad that needs to model this, last night as I was talking with uh, Rachel, her birthday was November the 11th. Okay, this has been a while. And last night as she was laying in bed, I just, I just sensed the need to ask her. I said, is there anything I've done that's, that's troubling you? And she said, well, on my birthday... She said it was time for us to, to eat together and for me to open the presents. And she said, you were playing a computer game. One of my friends had just given me a new computer chess game and I was trying to beat the computer. And she said, it took you a long time to get to the table and it made me feel like I wasn't very important. And I looked at her and I said, you know... I said, you're more important than that dumb game. I said, your dad was a knucklehead. And he does really stupid things. Will you forgive me for that? And she looked up at me and smiled and said, yeah, I'll forgive you for it. Because I had put her in a back seat to that computer. And just sitting there being sucked into a screen when something very important was going on in her life. And at the age of 10, she's not skilled in resolving a conflict in a relationship. She doesn't know she's supposed to bring that up and talk about it. But she did so very honestly and very openly. And hopefully we were able to get that behind us. And hopefully Dad you know, is learning lessons as we go along. I'm not standing up here talking to you as the guy that's got this love thing wired. I'm talking to you as somebody that's in process with it. And I'm learning as I go along. But that's phileo love. And even this little responder, this 10-year-old responder, was having trouble responding to me as a, the significant man in her life because I was hurting that response. Well, you know the fourth word for love, and it's the word that's the first word in the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the word agape. 
And I think probably the best definition for agape love we find in John 3.16. And that is, for God so loved the world. You could quote it, couldn't you? You've heard it a hundred times. And it's the reason you've heard it a hundred or a hundred thousand times is because it's one of the greatest verses in Scripture, isn't it? For God so loved the world. It's agape love. And literally in the Greek, if you kind of dissected that first part of it, you could say God loved the world in this manner. Or this is the way God showed His love to the world. That He, what? Gave. Gave. If there is such a one, if there is such a thing as a one word definition for love, that would be this first word in the fruit of the Spirit, agape love, it is the word give or giving. Some people would say, well, no, the opposite of love is hate. Listen, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. Not being a giving person, being a selfish person is the opposite of loving. And of course, that's the problem with eros love. Eros doesn't represent love many times at all. It represents selfishness. It's how can I gratify myself or my desire with you? Whatever that may be. And that's not a loving act, then. That is a selfish act. The basis of all loving relationships, whether it be in a couple that's, that's uh, kind of setting themselves apart from the group and becoming uh, more interested in each other, leading toward a marriage relationship, or whether it's a couple who are married, living in a home, or whether it is two friends within the context of the church, or whether it is me relating to my next-door neighbor who is not a Christian, the essence of a loving relationship that I would have with them is a relationship where I am not selfish. I put them or I put the Lord ahead of myself in that relationship. And I would challenge you to see that any relationships that are broken, that are hurting, that are torn relationships, relationships that are leading to disaster, at the core of that hurting relationship is one or two selfish individuals. People who are no longer givers in the relationship, but people who are takers. And of course, as we look at John 3.16 and we think about the implications of God's love in that particular verse, the fact that God gave, what's the world's response back to God? Is the world all excited about that? As you drive down... One of the roads here in the Santa Clarita Valley, do you see billboards that say, thank you, God, for sending your Son. We're so grateful. And you flip around the TV channels and just one commercial after another, airtime that's been purchased on television or in the newspaper, thanking God for that great gift. And the answer is no. It's often been said that the worst thing you can do to someone is not treat them badly, but ignore them. Because when you ignore someone, you're acting like they don't even exist. 
And by and large, that's the way that the world responds back to God. It's like He doesn't even exist. He's not even there. But yet God loves, and He offers that unconditional love, that selfless love, even though the world gives no response in return. And that is agape love. That's the first component of the fruit of the Spirit. It's kind of mirrored in a normal maturing relationship. As people mature, as we look at the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 5, we see that a maturing relationship kind of moves through three stages. Well, there in uh, the, the Hebrew people that he's writing to, he says, first of all, you're dependent on another person. He said, you know, I'd like for you to be teachers, but you still need to be taught. That's dependence. But then you hope that you can get a person from dependence to independence, where they can kind of stand on their own. They're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. It's true in a family as well. One of my goals is to get our kids from dependence to independence. I don't want them to live with us forever. I'm hoping that they'll move out and the honeymoon will start up again, see? And that they'll be dependent. They'll be able to care for themselves. But that short circuits it. That's, that's about as far as it gets with a lot of people in our culture as deep as independence. But the next step, Paul says, I wish that you could take care of others, that you could teach others, and that's interdependence. And that's what love is. Love means that now, rather than looking to be dependent to being cared for, and some people are still caught on that level, they move to independence, and some people are still caught on that level. Independence is selfishness. What can I get out of this relationship how is it going to benefit me? How does it focus on my needs to interdependence? And that is now I am mature enough to care for other people. I am no longer selfish to the point where I can become a loving person. And listen, if you're dating someone and they're caught up in independence, if the date life revolves around what they want to do, and it is not a mutual situation where hopefully you would glorify the Lord together and focus on Him and then seek within that framework to relate to each other in the way that God would want you to relate to each other and meet each other's needs. And that relationship is rooted in someone's selfishness. And it's an awfully poor way to get a relationship started. And it's ultimately doomed to difficulty unless somebody grows up. I've got so many things I'd like to share with you, but I don't have the time to do it. Let me tell you about another instance in our life. We had been married for four years. And then it came time to move out here. 
And in some ways, I was ready for a marriage relationship. But there were other things that were difficult. After we were married for four years, our first child was born. And she's, just, she's going through a rite of passage this week. She just started driver's ed on Monday. And so... Saturday, last, or yeah, Saturday we spent uh, about an hour in the parking lot at COC where she's learned how to drive my car. It's got a clutch. And after about two hours of her practicing, I finally quit going like this, you know. And, uh, but my wife was seven months pregnant with Jill when we moved out here. And uh, that was very difficult time in, the, in, in our lives because we're very family-oriented people, and we sense God's call in our life, and we kind of took my wife and put her on an emotional island out here during a very important time in her life. And uh, I can remember that I got all caught up with my work here at the college and immediately began to throw myself into it and enjoy the things that I was doing. And uh, was sen- was sensitive to my wife, but but really caught up here. And I started. I had always been sort of a gym rat, you know, through high school and college. I always played on the basketball team, and I played on the tennis team, and some different things, and always enjoyed that. And I met up with some guys here that uh, were part of the administration here, and I was working on the administration. And uh, they said, let's go out and play, let's go out and do stuff. And they got involved in a, some basketball leagues and got involved in uh, uh, playing golf with some guys. And I remember one day when we were done playing golf, and I came home and it was probably about 8 o'clock in the evening. We played what's called a twilight rate where you can spend uh, just a few dollars and go out about three o'clock and play till either it gets dark or the sprinklers come on, whichever one runs you off the course. And I remember coming in and it, it was just a twilight time and I walked into our apartment and I looked there in the, the living room of our apartment and I saw Beth sitting there with Jill. And Jill was less than a year old. And my wife was holding her and she looked up at me. And remember I told you that the Holy Spirit spoke to me the first time I saw her. And I don't think God has ever spoken to me audibly, but I've had movings in my heart from time to time. And it was like the Lord kind of moved in my heart at that point in my life. And he said two words to me. He said, grow up. Grow up. You've got a wife that's sitting there with a daughter that's less than a year old, and you're out goofing around with guys on a golf course, and you're out playing ball and doing a bunch of junk, and your wife's on on an island right now. You need to grow up. And I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. Those that know me know that I'm kind of the, if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off kind of guy. And uh, so I just called the local newspaper the next morning and put a set of golf clubs for sale and the want ads. And I, I made the price right on them so that within a day or two they were gone. I sold those puppies. 
And uh, I said, you know what we need is, instead of golf clubs, we need a little backpack that I can wear and put Jill in. And uh, instead of playing golf, I need to come home and we need to take some walks together. And we need to talk and we need to spend time together as a family. Because, see, loving leadership is unselfish leadership. Loving relationships are unselfish relationships. And if you're not to the point in your life when you're, where you're willing to make tough choices, you're not ready for a relationship. You're still playing games. But when you're real, willing to be a loving person to make the kind of commitments, make the kind of choices that are called for, then you're ready for relationships. Whether, no matter what the relationship is, the opposite of love is selfishness. The synonym for love is being a giving person, an unselfish person, one that's ready for that relationship. Let's pray together. Lord, we've just scratched the surface of what love is as we think about words and terms and verses that you've given to us, I pray that you'll help each of these young adults that are here at the Master's College to be loving people. To not approach a relationship, what can I get out of this? How can that employee enhance me? How can that other member of the body minister to me? How can that other person make me look good? How can that other person admire me? But rather, Father, we will be people who are characterized by love, people who are givers and not takers. We know that we need to know what to give and when to give it and what's appropriate. And there are a whole lot of questions that are left unanswered by our time together this morning. But I pray that the basic thrust of what agape love is will ring loud and clear in our minds. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will use us by granting us this first component in his fruit as we learn to yield more and more to him in the days ahead. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.